0: I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, uh, which is from Judges, the traditional Advent reading from Judges chapter 8, verses 28 and following, <laughs> if you'll turn in your Advent, hymnolo- Advent liturgy to, uh, <laughs> right. oh man, uh, I think I should have it up there, Judges 8, uh, 28, starting there. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of of Joash's father, at Orpha of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and whored after the Baals, and and made Baal-Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its faithfulness to challenge our hearts and encourage us uh, toward you, Jesus. Um, We do uh, celebrate you this season and thank you for your incarnation for which we are forever grateful um, and give our whole lives, not just this season, unto you. And so, God, we pray that you would encourage us, even from this text, of the significance of Jesus coming to earth uh, to be King of kings, Lord of lords, Ruler over all the universe, um, for whom all things were made, and through whom all things were made. In His name, we pray. Amen. <coughs> um, so, one of the most challenging times in your career is when you're transitioning jobs. You might be changing jobs. You might have a profession for a period of time, but then like it's time to move on from some uh, some uh, company to another company. And and when that happens, you get you know. New workers, new co-workers, new goals, new products, all these things you've got to learn to transition into your new role. Um, And I was thinking about that with Gideon a little bit because we have this amazing story of how Gideon conquers the Midianites, and we actually spend three whole chapters on that, and then we transition to a a very brief uh, summary today of his death and the rest of his life. Like, think about the time span that we spent three weeks on, um, or four weeks on, uh, was probably a matter of weeks, months, something like that. Um, his response to the Lord and going against Midian, uh, his, his obedience to doing so, um, and his completion of you know, defeating the Midianites was only a short period of his life. Um, and then, in this very brief summary of his life, we find out how the rest of his life went. It was difficult for him to transition from uh, his time fighting obediently for the, against the Midianites to this time living his life. And we know that, you know, transition times are, are difficult uh, for certain, um, and, and no more difficult a transition in our life, as in our lives, we look around at our time, uh, than transitioning from something like military service to civilian life. We all know this, is, we, we know veterans maybe in your life that have come home from war and fighting war and the transition to, being in civilian life from a time when they were spending in active military service is a difficult transition. Because at one point you've got a very clear focused goal, a very clear enemy that you're going after, a very clear objective that you're trying to attain. And then you come home to wherever you may live and have to change your focus and even almost try and forget what you have done because it's so hard and heavy to go maybe kill other people for whatever Uh, directives you've been given. It is not an easy transition to go from military service to civilian life. And we should take note of that. If you know someone that's served in the military and has been in combat or something like that, be sure that you extend grace and love and come around them and support them because it's not easy to go from that kind of calling in life and transition into this It made me think of Gideon because, man, how crazy would it have been to be called by the Lord to go forth and defeat the Midianites and 100,000 of them die before you. And then to like transition and go, okay, now how do I live my life? (laughs) We see him uh, here, you know, we've been going over the story of Gideon and, and I think some of you were maybe hoping that just do a traditional... Uh, Christmas Eve message and, and just skip past Gideon. Justin wasn't, okay, he, he wanted this. Uh, we're not going to cover the whole story of Abimelech. It's a full ni- full chapter 9. Um, but one thing I want to point out is that uh, the history of Gideon, as we look at the book of Judges, is uh, an entirety of four chapters. Only Samson has as many chapters in the book of Judges, and, and this whole story has been primarily about Israel's conflict with Midianites. Um, after Uh, defeating Midian, Gideon rightly proclaims, he's coming home from war, and the people say, hey, we want you to be our king. We want you to step in and rule over us. And he rightly proclaims that the Lord is the only one qualified to be the ruler. Gideon said to them in uh, Judges 8, 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This is a valiant statement and one we should commend. Unfortunately for Gideon, he did not transition well from being obedient to the Lord in the battle against Midian to living out what he even said, that the Lord shall be the ruler of Israel, including himself. So far, I've pointed out that some interpreters have reflected negatively on Gideon's life and saying that he was hesitant to, hesitant to accept the call of the Lord, that he doubted the Lord's plan when the Lord gave it to him, that he responded in vengeance against his own people, that these things are kind of raised against him. And I will say that the Lord in judges never condemns any of that portion of his life. In fact, he is the one that's obedient in contrast to the people of Israel, is what we've seen so far. Many of these that say that that Gideon is hesitant or doubting or responding in vengeance, they do not emphasize uh, that Gideon is never judged by the Lord in these things. And in fact, Gideon worships the Lord as he sees the hand of the Lord move. Judges 7.15, he worshiped the Lord in the midst of his battle. He gave honor to the Lord when he engaged in battle. He said, For the Lord and for Gideon. And why did he say Gideon his name? Only because the people among him were afraid of his name. He rejected the kingship and declared, Lord will rule over you all, Judges 8.23 as we've seen. And it's perhaps for these reasons, his obedience and following what the Lord has instructed him to do, that Gideon is spoken of positively in Hebrews 11.32 and commended for his faith. All that said... We're talking about Gideon's legacy today, and um, his legacy cannot be defended completely. He's imperfect. He isn't the Savior that is to come. While saying in word that he and his sons would not rule, the facts seem to differ. It seems that he did, in fact, lead in a manner of his father... And he did, in fact, lead in a way of the kings and rulers of the Gentiles, which we'll see from this short passage today. (coughs) Judges 8, 28 to 35. um, In your Bibles, it might, like, cut that off, verses 28 from 29 and following. But I think, I see, personally, I see, uh, we've talked about the sum here. You've heard me say this word, chiasm, right? I see a chiasm here between verses 28 and and 34, 35, um, where we see, you know, we've talked about chiasm where, where this is a literary structure that on the outside you've got one point and then moving in with verses you're getting another point and at the very middle you're getting the central point that the writer is trying to communicate in this moment, okay? And so on the outside of this verses uh, 20, 28 at the beginning and at the end 33 and 34, you see what's happening with the people of Israel. First, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Right? Midian was victorious. But in verses 33 to 35, we see, and sorry, this is out of order, on that, <clears throat> um, 33 to 35 we see, as soon as Gideon passes away, the people of Israel turned again to the Baals and made Baal-bereth their God. They did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for the good that he had done to Israel. So on the outside of this passage, we have a reflection on the people of Israel, and their response to Gideon's life. They were protected for 40 years, yet when Gideon died, they turned back to serve Baal. What a judgment against the people of Israel that that the Lord would raise up Gideon to powerfully defeat hundreds of thousands of Midianite soldiers. And then after 40 years of peace in the land, the people of Israel go, ah, Baal. Baal. So this is the outside of her passage. Moving in one iteration, verses 29 and 32. This speaks of Gideon taking on in himself some flaws. He took on the character and ruling nature of his father. You might remember that all the people in Gideon's region respected Gideon's father. Gideon's father actually had the the major uh, uh, idol, that the people of the land worship. They would come to Gideon's land and worship this, uh, this Ashtoreth and Baal idol at his land. And so when Gideon tore it down, the people of surroundings surrounding said, you need to kill Gideon because he's torn down this st- statue. And so Gideon's father had, had ruled and was, had influence there in their land. And, and what we see here is that Gideon is falling into a pattern of his father. And being a leader in that land, verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, you can see it there that he's identifying in the description with his dad. He truly becomes son of Joash. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, lived in his own house. He built his own house. And the, uh, the couplet to that, verse 32, and Gideon, the son of Joash, again, noting that he's the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Orpha of the Obizarites. Instead of living his life in honor to the Lord, he moved to rule as his father would rule, taking the influence that his father had over the people around him. And we see this most clearly shown in this final uh, section in the middle, which kind of sets up chapter 9. We're not going to go through all of chapter 9, but uh, this, these two verses set us up for the story of Abimelech. In the middle of this couple, we see really Gideon's final and major flaw. He's acting like a king of the Gentiles would act. He didn't say he would take the rulership of Israel, but he did step into influence and acted as a Gentile influencer would act. Verses 30 and 31. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. So a couple things I want to point out here about this uh, this statement as we reflect on Gideon's life. Um, the point of mentioning the many wives is not to highlight its sinfulness nor deny it, okay? It's like the Bible is not denying that this is a sinful approach to his life. Um, In fact, there's an explicit uh, uh, command, or multiple explicit commands uh, about this, but one in particular toward kings, which really Gideon is stepping into, In Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17, he tells them in advance that this is how you should operate. When you come into the land, that's where they are, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, which is what they were trying to do with Gideon. You may indeed set a king over you whom whom the Lord your God will choose. The Lord didn't choose Gideon for this role. The people chose Gideon. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire himself excess silver and gold. Let's go back to the first part of 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart should turn away. The Lord knew that this was an operating procedure of royalty at the time. And he said, unlike the kings of your day, you are not to acquire many wives for yourself. Lest your heart be changed. Lest your heart not rely on the Lord for his strength rather than what you are doing in control. So I want to point out real quickly why the Lord would give a warning about having many wives. It seems like pretty clear from Scripture at the beginning that the Lord made Adam and Eve, and he brought Eve to Adam. It should be one wife, right? This is what it should be. But we need to mention that there are two basically accepted times in this culture when having additional wives was okay. The first is in scenarios of infertility, okay? You didn't have like IVF treatments or things, like this wasn't happening then to like increase fertility. And so the only treatment you would have would be to have another wife. Because your first wife couldn't have kids, you would have another wife and try and have kids to extend your line. So in that case, it was culturally accepted as a means of fertility treatment to have another wife. So that's one scenario. The other scenario, which isn't a great uh, excuse in any way, but it was accepted by the culture, was for royal lineage building. Commonly accepted for rulers and leaders to have many wives. Why? So that you'd have the possibility of having many sons, and your line would reign for many years. And so this is Gideon's flaw. He sees that he's stepped into a place of leadership, even though he, by word, rejected it, and he acts as a Gentile ruler would, and gains to himself many wives, that he could control his family's continued influence forever. He has 70 sons. Like, there's no chance he's going to be uprooted, right? He's got 70 sons to extend his reign. He should be set. Right? Right? Accepting daughters, too, right? I'm sure there's daughters in there also. Um, In this case, Gideon is building his lineage to control his family's influence for years to come, which is acting in contrast to exactly what he told the people of Israel. He's leading without taking the responsibility of leading. And the purpose of this chiastic structure is to put this fact of his life right in the middle Because what happens next is truly a tragedy. He gains to himself many wives, and it turns out that he can't get enough of what he thinks is a good thing. And he goes beyond just having wives to extend his uh, royal lineage, and also takes on a concubine who is not his wife and has a son named Abimelech. So he went beyond what even the culture would say and and had a son with a woman that he didn't even bring into his harem as a wife. And that man's name was Abimelech. The story of Abimelech is truly a tragedy, and and we got to go over it some on Thursday or on Wednesday at community group in our house. And I don't know, you guys didn't have, yeah, yeah. Um, so, hey, go back and read chapter 9, so good, so good. <laughs> uh, there are some good parts for sure, but it is, ju- it is very sad. Um, what we see, and I'm just going to give you a summary of what happens with Abimelech, if you don't know the story, um, is this, quick summary for you. Um, Abimelech, you know, is on the outside looking in of leadership. He's a stepson, and there's 70 rightful sons to the throne. And so he goes to Shechem and convinces the leaders of Shechem that he's one of them, unlike the sons of Gideon. And that they should have him as ruler instead of the sons of Gideon. And he convinces his family to go about and make him the ruler. And they come and support him. And then Abimelech goes and kills all of the sons of Gideon, except he misses one who escapes named Jotham. Jotham escapes and then comes back to the people of Israel and proclaims to them a prophecy. And in this prophecy, he says to them, if you've acted in good faith in what you have done in putting Abimelech as your ruler, then God bless you. But obviously they have not. And his prophecy is, if you have not acted in good faith, then may you be destroyed by your own actions. May it come back upon you. He actually tells a parable uh, about trees who reject leadership, and the final tree to accept leadership is the bramble, barely even a tree, full of thorns, that comes back to rule and takes the throne, this being Abimelech. So he says, if you have not acted in good faith, then may this decision come back upon you. And finally... We see Abimelech going forward. He, he is bloodthirsty; he can't get enough of uh, of taking over influence, and he takes city after city, and goes after uh, his enemies. And finally, he's killed um, while taking over one of these cities in the region. Uh, a woman drops the headstone off of a tower and kills him. The leaders of Shechem as well as Abimelech are killed. And Jotham's prophecy comes true. And this, unfortunately, is Gideon's legacy. Gideon falls short of our Savior, and his son Abimelech follows suit. We can compare Gideon and Abimelech to the familiar story of the time of Jesus' birth. And what we find is that Gideon and Abimelech act more like Herod than they do like Jesus. Gideon takes the position of his father as leader in in his hometown of Orpha. Much like Herod, took cooperation with Rome over cooperation with the Lord. Gideon uh, takes on many wives to secure his influence and lineage like a Gentile king. And he went beyond that practice to having a child outside of wedlock without marrying that mother. And Abimelech, too, like Herod, was willing to murder for maintenance of control or taking of control. Gideon also instead of trusting the Lord with one wife, took up many wives to secure his reign and authority. You can see the character of the spirit of the world that was in Herod, operating in Gideon as well, and in Abimelech. Judges gives no redeeming qualities to speak of with Abimelech, and this falls on Gideon's legacy. This should turn our hearts to Christ, and it's really the purpose of reflecting on these stories to remind us that a perfect Savior has come, and a perfect King is here. This is true that while we can learn a lot from leaders in the Old Testament, they all fall short of what we need in a Savior. There's much we can learn about obedience to the Lord's voice from Gideon and faith in God for doing big things that are bigger than us, right? I mean, is anybody ready to take a, uh, a, you know, a trumpet and a torch and go against 135,000 soldiers with 300 men, right? But this is what Gideon did. And so we can learn from these things. He did amazing things in following the Lord, but he's not the Savior we need. He is very much a fallen man. In contrast with Christ, who came to earth in humility, laid down himself entirely from his birth unto his death. Jesus listened perfectly to his Father's voice, Jesus did not protect an earthly kingdom but lived for an eternal kingdom. And he did not follow his fleshly desire but rather laid down his life for us. It's been good to look at the judges, especially in some of the positive light of things they've done from Othniel, uh, to Barak and, and Deborah, uh, to Gideon, and we'll soon be looking at Samson and others. Um, but we must remember, as great a feats as they accomplish, and as great as feats as kings accomplish, like David and others, all these great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament do wonderful things, and we should learn from them, but they are insufficient. And each of them point us to a need for the All-Sufficient One, Christ who came without any sin in himself and took on sin that we might become the righteousness of God 2 Corinthians 5:21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God This is why we celebrate Christmas <laughs> because we needed desperately a leader to come and our hearts longed for someone uh, able to lead us in this life and the next. And Jesus did that. From birth to death, coming humbly as a baby and dying humbly on a cross. He shows us what it is to be a child of the king, to be a child in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, so grateful for the coming of Christ And we're so thankful that your entire word points to the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament leads up to it, the New Testament reflects on it. Lord, our lives are built around your birth and your death. We mark time by it, history turns on it, that you came in flesh and lived among us took on the sin that we committed he took it on in your flesh though you knew no sin all for the possibility of us becoming your righteousness we thank you that you took our place for all of us fall short And so, God, we pray uh, that in this time, as we give gifts to one another and as we celebrate your coming, that we would remember the eternal gift you gave us in coming to this earth and living a life like ours, living it perfectly in obedience to the Father and dying on the cross for us. Lord, we are forever grateful, we sing of it, we remember it, and Lord, we pray that we would walk in light of it every day of our life. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.